Welcome to the United States of Health blog podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, North American editor of The Lancet. Organ donation has rapidly evolved since the first successful transplants in the 1950s and 60s, and as transplants have become a more common and viable last-line treatment option for many patients, the systems for managing organ donations and allocations has also evolved. One of the many challenges involved in overseeing organ sharing is to decide how organs can be equitably distributed. When someone gives the gift of life, to whom and where does that gift go? Today we feature a conversation with one of the leading voices in the field of organ donation, Dr. David Mulligan. Well, my name is David Mulligan, and I'm the Chief of Transplant and Immunology at Yale Hospital uh, in New Haven, Connecticut, and I work for the Yale University on campus here. So I'm a professor of surgery and immunology, and I also serve a role, in addition to directing the entire transplant program here at Yale, of chairing the Liver and Intestinal Transplant Committee for the United Network of Organ Sharing, or what we commonly call UNOS, and it's also as a federal contractor to the Department of Health and Human Services, known as the Organ Procurement and Transplant Network, or the OPTN. So we serve this duality role uh, for both UNOS and the OPTN, and I chair the section of that organization that oversees the allocation and distribution policies and the programs and feel the needs of the community with respect to both adult and pediatric liver transplant and intestinal transplantation. Well, welcome, Dr. Mulligan, and thank you for joining us today. Um, I think that's a a nice setup to get talking about some of the other issues around organ donation. And I know that many of our readers and listeners might not be familiar with the way in which the organ donation network is set up in the United States. And so you've introduced UNOS and the OPTN. Can you give us a little bit more background about how that's structured and what goes into that? Well, many years ago, when transplantation moved out of the arena of an experimental form of trying to treat patients with end-stage organ failure and into an arena as a standard of care, we quickly evolved into a need to try and organize how to get these life-saving organs to the patients who needed them in a most effective and balanced way. And that included the new development of transplant programs that were springing up across the country, their geographic locations, population densities, and the ideas of how to transport both to and from donor hospitals, which many times were in separate facilities. They were hospitals that might not have anything to do with transplantation. And so originally, the first organs that were creating this need were kidneys for kidney transplants. And and as the administrative needs for trying to lay out locales for transplant centers were developing. The end-stage renal disease network was forming with over 100,000 people on hemodialysis, and that was all looked at as a bridge to potential for transplantation by most of us because transplant actually was such an effective therapy that it was not only life-saving, but it was more cost-effective than staying on dialysis for the rest of one's life. They started to develop these regions around the country that we actually 
are currently using today. These 11 regions would divide the country along state boundaries predominantly to groups and clusters around where these, at the time, mostly kidney transplant centers were located. And following suit, as liver transplantation, heart and lung transplantation evolved and became more successful, pancreas transplantation, and these organs were, were being more and more successful and moved into the arena of standards of care, then this regional system continued to be a part of the allocation and distribution system for all of these organs. One by one, we started to see that, in fact, perhaps these regional boundaries that we have been living with since the inception of UNOS may not actually be as ideal as we had once thought. And that actually for different organs, lungs and then heart and, then, and now liver, we find that, in fact, the boundaries of distribution were probably not ideal. And that as people started to accumulate on the wait list, we started to see problems in trying to have equal access to these organs for our patients. And so what's grown over the years from this original system is that we have these very active, very stable administrative structures for boundaries of regions so that we can have representation in various committees and for various transplant centers. And we have a system that works very well administratively. But organ by organ, we're finding that there may be more optimal ways to distribute the organs depending on the unique of those organs, and there may be some better ways to try and balance the allocation and distribution systems for these organs that may go beyond what these regions represent. We're not about trying to get rid of the regions because the regions have very successfully helped to try and maintain UNOS and the OPTN as a very functional organization in trying to oversee transplant center and organ procurement organization performance, but we're trying to look at by each organ, what patients' needs are best addressed by and, and how we can best serve patients with this limited uh, scarce resource because now we have over 100,000 patients on a transplant waiting list for all organs in this country, just under 17,000 with liver disease, and we only have a little over 6,000 donors a year in the United States. And so, as you can imagine, there's such a short supply of life-saving organs and donors who can save lives and, and such a great need. And so that disparity is something that we're always mindful of and trying to reduce all the time. So let's talk a little bit more about that and livers in particular, which have garnered some national media attention recently. And what I found really surprising after reading more about it is that donations in the South and the Midwest are higher than the West or the Northeast, which seems very counterintuitive to me. What can you tell us about the factors that play into these regional differences in terms of donation? And what are some of the options that UNOS might also be considering to increase the equity and allocation of donor livers? Well, as we get to the problem with livers, what we noticed first was that the patients on the West Coast and the patients in the Northeastern United States had a growing number of recipient candidates on the wait list and their MELD score, which is a very objective numeric score 
that represents their functional liver resilience, if you will. And this score is calculated by some simple labs that that enable um, any lab very quickly anywhere in the country to insert the bilirubin level, the INR, which is a, a measure of the coagulation factor production, and the creatinine, which is a measure of some of the kidney function as it relates to their liver disease. And taking these three numbers together, they're able to very accurately predict the likelihood of death in the next 90 days of a patient. And so this scoring system allows us to determine who is the sickest in a given blood type and to try and get the organs or get the livers to those sickest patients. And so on the West Coast and the Northeast, we notice over the past several years that the number of patients with higher and higher MELD scores can continue to climb. And now the highest you can be is 40 in the MELD score points, which is over 90% mortality in three months, which is really, really sick. And there are more and more people that are getting in the upper or mid-30 range on the West Coast and in the Northeast. And these people are actually subject to very high risk and may, in fact, as we're seeing here in in Connecticut, we frequently have patients dying almost on a weekly basis because they're getting too sick and they're not getting a life-saving liver in time. Whereas in other parts of the country, the meld at transplant are much lower in the low to mid-20 range, for example. And in those areas, we notice that there's a higher volume of organ donation activity and that because there's more organ donor availability, that these patients were getting transplanted at much lower scores, which is the ideal, and that's what we wish for everyone in the country. So what we noticed was that the drivers behind these organ donor availability differences had to do with multiple factors. But interestingly, the most important factor had to do with the numbers of deaths that were occurring in different parts of the country. And if you look at maps of the United States, broken down by regions or states, broken down by um, OPO service areas, there's a quite striking difference in the number of deaths in certain areas. There's a lot more uh, strokes and traumatic accidents, and there's a lot of higher death rates and at younger ages in certain parts of the country than there are in other parts of the country. And in fact, it appears that if one lives in the Northeast or in the, in the Northwest, that actually people tend to live a lot longer in those parts of the country than they do in the Southeast and in the Midwest uh, uh, for a variety of reasons. And those differences, these death rates are the strongest driver, as far as we can see, to increase the number of available donors for organ donation. Now, that's not taking away from the fact that there are some incredibly effective communities of education and public awareness that their organ procurement organizations are extraordinarily good at working with hospitals and working with the the public communities and raising organ donation awareness and helping to educate donor families and work with donor families in these tragic moments to try and give them the opportunity for this life-saving gesture and a way to make the tragedy turn out to be a heroic act on behalf of these donors. And it's a wonderful gift. And there's a lot of best practices that we're all learning from these organ procurement organizations that are so successful in providing that 
education and and that's something that is definitely not not to be ignored and we've been trying to work together collaboratively in practices to share these successes that Oregon procurement organizations have had in areas where they're very highly productive and compare to the areas where they've struggled to meet the consent rates and the conversion rates that we talk about where a donor family isn't comfortable that this organ donation should take place. And we are trying very hard in certain areas to try and improve the public to be comfortable that this is a wonderful gift and it leaves a legacy behind that they otherwise wouldn't have. And so it's a there's definitely some disparity in that. Every organ procurement organization isn't the same. The populations that they're in, some of the populations may have a large ethnic background that feels skeptical about health care. They may not be as comfortable in the concept of organ donation in the health care system to be honorable in making a determination that a patient is appropriate for organ donation and that they've done everything they can to save the life of their loved one before this organ donation topic even comes up. So there's a lot of things about that that are definitely factors involved in organ donation rates. But the most important factor seems to be that there are just larger volumes of people that are uh, dying in certain parts of the country compared to other parts of the country. And that seems to be driving a huge change or big shift in the ability to consider those people as organ donors. I think that's a really helpful way of connecting those dots because it's not always as obvious, I think, for those of us just kind of reading about some of these details. And so it looks like the next big development, at least with regard to liver donations, is this public forum that's going to be in September 16th in Illinois. And once that takes place, what do you see as some of the potential steps that might occur after that stakeholder meeting? What do you think you'd like to see happen coming from that meeting? Well, the most important thing is to raise the awareness about how great a need exists for life-saving organs for transplant. If anything comes out of this forum, the most important thing is the public awareness that this is a big problem in the country. And in some parts of the country, the magnitude is 10 times worse than in other parts of the country. And our job as told to us by the Department of Health, the secretary actually mandated to us that we have to find a way of not only trying to prioritize patients based on how sick they are rather than where when they were put on the waiting list, but how sick they are, who's most likely to die to get that organ first. And the MELD score has done a very good job of that, but also to try and find a way to allow equitable and equal access to these life-saving organs regardless of where potential recipient may live. That where they live shouldn't be a factor for or against their access to a life-saving organ. That, that these organs are there for patients. The donors are donating so that the sickest person can get their lives saved and that that's the priority and we're not trying to make these uh, these organs only focused in certain parts of the country but we're trying to be there for everyone and so the goal of this forum is is to be transparent that we're just trying to get the everyone together to come up with what makes the most sense how can we reduce the disparity without 
making anything worse for anyone, but to actually try to save the most number of lives with the scarce resources we possibly can. And it's got to make sense, and it's got to be good so that everyone can benefit. And my hope is that when we walk out from the meeting, we'll have a better idea and be closer to the development of a method that will allow us to get the organs to the sickest patients who need the organs, that we're transplanting patients appropriate for, or, for these organ transplants, and that we're saving the most lives. I, I think that one of the things that has been concerned is that patients that are currently getting organs when they're much healthier in the Midwest and in the Southeast feel like they're now going to be shifted to this much higher risk of death and that they're going to have to take on a much greater burden of death on the wait list than they've ever done before in order so that people on the West Coast and the Northeast can have access to some of the livers that they were keeping in those areas. And I think my message would be, in fact, this is a chance for them to be a hero and save another life, to wait a little longer before it's their turn to get their life-saving liver transplant. And, it's, and the data would show that they're not moving you know, into uh, high death rate themselves, but they're just waiting a little longer so that they're saving someone who is very likely to die in the next week or two who doesn't have that access. So in the end, everybody benefits. And what we're showing to people at this forum is that when we've looked at this in great detail, that there are possibilities, there are methods that we've never considered that can accomplish this and to do it in a very mindful way and save lives in ways that make sense and actually benefit everyone, both in lives saved and in the quality of transplants done everywhere, as well as reduce hundreds of millions of dollars in national expense in caring for people with end-stage liver disease. So a lot of considerations and potential developments there. I think this has been a really helpful snapshot of the state of organ donation in the U.S. and what the strengths are and also where we need to really think about investing efforts. So I'd like to thank you so much for helping us get a better understanding of some of those issues and how we might go about making the organ donation system more equitable. And it's such an important topic and one that affects so many Americans. So again, many thanks for taking the time to talk with us today, Dr. Mulligan. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. It's been my pleasure, and I hope everyone really gives this some strong consideration because it affects everyone in this country.